This is Fair Examination on the Mormon Faircast. Fair Examination takes a close look at interesting and sometimes difficult issues facing the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and its members. Blake Smith is a member of the Church who has a history with same-sex attraction. In this interview, he shares how he reconciled his sexual attractions to men with the gospel of Jesus Christ and how the law of chastities brought him peace. He begins talking about his unsuccessful attempts at aversion therapy and subsequent failed marriage. He then shares why he decided to stay in the church and what helped him. He talks about the love and encouragement he received from his ecclesiastical leaders and from a support group called North Star. He tells his story of finding true love to the woman of his dreams and of finally overcoming same-sex attraction. Welcome to Fair Examination. It's nice to have you on the show with us. It's good to be here. Let's just tell us a little bit about your background. Okay, my name is Blake Smith. I've been around a long time. I've got a lot of life experience, and I'm... I honor this experience. Um, one of the things that I faced in my life was a very powerful attraction, maybe even a craving to other men that the craving has is completely gone, completely gone from my life. And the, the attraction has diminished significantly. And I would say that my attractions are an insignificant part of my life at the current time. But they are also, the fact that I've experienced this, I consider to be a great blessing in my life. So you make a distinction between craving and attraction. Can you explain that a bit better? Yes, the craving, every inch of my body craved male contact. 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year. And I could control it all day, and I'd dream about it all night. And this went on for years. So an attraction to me is, well, okay, that guy looks nice. That lady looks nice. Okay. So, you know, and, and sometimes I have attract, you know, I have had attractions that I thought were pretty powerful. I haven't had any of those for a while where I, I thought, oh, wow, that, look, that guy looks really good. Maybe I'd like to do something about that. But, um. I haven't had any of those types of attractions either for quite a while. So, but I mean, the craving is just, it was just every inch of my body ached, almost like you're craving for food in hour 23 of your 24-hour fast. That's the only thing I can compare it to. It was just all the time, every day. Wow. So, so um, we're going to talk a little bit today about some of the things that worked and some of the things that didn't work on helping to change that craving and also diminish the attraction. Um, so the first thing that you did um, was aversion therapy, correct? That was the first thing that I did. Leading up to aversion therapy, what were some of the things that made you want to undertake aversion therapy? Well, I was having the cravings. I knew I didn't want to live that way. Probably I'd go back to about the age of 13 when I realized what it was that I was facing and when I could put a name to it, and the name I gave it wasn't a very nice name. At that, you know, at that moment, I vowed that I would never act on it, and I have been successful in that. 
But it was just something that, like I said, I had this craving all the time, every day. And I was getting really tired of it. And it was I was getting very, very weary. And um, I was at Rick's College, is what they called it in those days. And What is um, it called now? BYU uh, Idaho, Brigham Young University Idaho is what it's called now. So I was there and I had some friends and I had some friends that I knew were gay and so I but I just didn't want to be like that. I didn't want to live like that. It was very important to me to be able to have a wife and children and that was what was important to me and I was getting frustrated and discouraged about my ability to have that and so one day I walked into the counseling center and asked to see a therapist and they gave me a therapist and that was what happened. Did the therapist immediately go into aversion therapy or did they try other alternatives? He set me up, he began setting me up um, on aversion therapy uh, during my first visit. When I told him what I was dealing with, I told him that this is what I felt. He um, brought one of his, he brought one of his colleagues in. They gave me a priesthood blessing and then um, he, the, at the next appointment, they began the process of setting up the aversion therapy. Before meeting with this therapist, had you talked to anyone else about your attractions, about your craving? Um, I briefly mentioned them to a bishop in a letter that was completely watered down, and it was mostly a lie. So I know how that goes. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, I had I had com I completely minimized them. I just kind of um, I, I told him that I'd been sexually abused as a child and that that was having an impact on my abilities to deal with life right right at that time, which wasn't well, that was an accurate factor, but or that was an accurate statement. But I never um, you know I didn't intimate to him the level of difficulty that I was having at that time. Did you keep all of these things to your, so you pretty much kept all of these feelings to yourself up to this point. How how yes. did that make you feel? Were you very confident about yourself, and did you how did it make you feel? Oh, I was. I lived a life consumed in shame and self -lo self loathing. I just hated myself and everything about myself. So I did. I was not a healthy person. When you were able to actually talk to the therapist, which was the first time you talked to someone face-to-face, -face, how how did that process go? How did he treat you? How did you react? He was the most warm and loving and accepting person I had ever met. And I didn't – I just was surprised that he – you know, I expected anybody that I told that was just going to get up and – throw up all over me before they beat up on me. I mean, that was just kind of the attitude that I walked in there with. But he was so warm and so loving, and he would, he would walk by, you know, he, 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 he wasn't afraid to touch me in a, a comfortable, healthy way. Nothing, definitely not sexual, but like, like a father would touch a 10-year-old son who's, you know, doesn't want to be cuddled, but they still need the affection. It was like that type of, it was that type of appropriate affection that he, um, that he was willing to give me, and I felt loved by him. I felt accepted by him. And when he brought his colleague in to give me a blessing, I don't remember what they said, but I remember that I had the most beautiful feeling while they were doing it. What do you think the effects of the blessing were? 
You know, I've never really thought about that because, you know, I I dealt with the craving for another, what, 15, 20 years before, you know, before I could say that the craving had gone away. So I really hadn't thought about that. I don't know. It, it wasn't an immediate – I did not get an immediate solution. Right. To the craving, but there's other things that were going on. You know, I just felt I, – I felt a lot of peace when they gave me that blessing. And I just was – I felt – like I said, I felt so much acceptance by them, by the therapist by, – by the two therapists, and I don't know if, you know, the therapist one told therapist two what the issue was. I don't know, but they they were just, um, you know, I just felt really good at that moment, and I felt like I had a brighter future at that moment. Going into the aversion therapy, were they licensed people? Yeah. He was a Ph.D. in counseling psychology. Did he explain to you the risks involved in aversion therapy? I don't recall any discussion on risks. Um, the, the big thing he told me that he, he told me how how the process would be that he would I would essentially be taping a bare electrical wire to the back of my calf and and he told me that he would be very careful in how much he administered and the goal was that he wanted me to feel it and he wanted it to feel uncomfortable but not painful that was the goal okay did it succeed or was it painful no, I think he was he was always I don't recall it ever being painful. Another thing that he had me do though was I had I put a rubber band around my wrist and every time I had a thought I was supposed to pop myself with the rubber band. And there were a few days where I got red and that was then that hurt. But I was following his instructions but I was self administering, so I couldn't say that he was overly administering, it was me that was overly administering. Um, under his instructions, of course. So, so you were hurt more from the rubber band than the yeah, electric. yeah. Because when you hear of you know a bare wire attached to your calf, it sounds very extreme. Well, my wife uses what they call a, a tens unit, where um, they use electrical stimulation to take to get rid of pain and muscles, and. I am currently dealing with a shoulder injury, and she put the uh, so I decided to use her tens unit, and she put it on me, and um, and then she got messing with it trying to get it right, and I can tell you that the shock administered by that tens unit far exceeded anything that I ever experienced as a result of the the aversion therapy. I was like hurting, turn that off. <laughs> so that hurt. You know, it's like, that was a, turn that off, what are you trying to do, kill me? <laughs> no, I do not remember experiencing anything that was painful as a part of the electrical shock in the uh, in the aversion therapy. It was, but it was uncomfortable, like he said it would be, and that was the purpose of it. Right, not to torture you. But right, it wasn't torture, but it was, um, and, and, he, and he would ask me, he'd go, you know, how does that feel? Um, is that okay? And I go, yeah, that's okay. So he never shocked me more than I allowed him to shock me, certainly. Mm-hmm. And and I'm not into pain, so um, you know, I I took the approach that um, 
you know, it, it was meant to be uncomfortable, but I wasn't going to, you know, I wasn't going to allow myself to be tortured. I wouldn't say anything about it was torture. So, besides the bare wire to your calf, um, can you explain more how the process went? Well, the first part of the process is I was uh, I was he gave me um, a series of he gave me some slides that were porno pictures. So there was a stack of slides that were naked men, and there was a stack of slides that were naked women. And so then I had to pick the eight that I the eight men that I found the most attractive and the eight women that I found the most attractive. And um, then I was supposed to rank order them from the most attractive to the least attractive. And so the um, so the goal was they would start with, and so what they would do is, you know, what he was going to do was he was going to start with showing me pictures of the most attractive man and the least attractive woman back and forth. And I was supposed to fantasize about this, about the woman and being with her and all that. And then when he showed me the picture of the least attractive of the men, it would um, then I, that that was that time that the shock was administered you know, to create the the aversion. And it's it, it's based upon Pavlov um, Pavlovian conditioning is what it, what it was based upon. So um, they. That was how how it went, and then I would he would show me. So then, as I was as as the the experience went on, the the they moved me to down the line of to from to the least attractive you know, to the most attractive of the men and the least attractive of the women, so that I you know, so that I would get to the point where I was finding the men less and less attractive or this very attractive man that I saw at the beginning would be would have taken on much less attraction as part of the process. So did that work or No. <laughs> um had you seen um pornographic pictures before this? There were I had I saw female porn um as part of the sexual abuse when I was a child. He, the sexual abuser used female porn, Playboy magazines, um, you know, to get everybody, you know, to get everybody in the mood. So, um, uh, so I, I had seen female porn, but I had never seen um, male porn. I've seen, I had actually seen couples porn. Some people I worked with thought that I was pure as the driven snow, and it was bothering them. So one day they brought some porn magazines that had both men and women. And um, so I um, I had seen couples porn of, of men and women, and I had seen um, naked women, but I had never just had the naked men in a in a gay situation as in the porn prior to this to this experience. Mm -hmm. What was the effect of the aversion therapy? Any positive effect was temporary, very temporary. Um, the long-term effect is that I have, um, I have porno pictures permanently embedded in my mind that I can think about when I go to the temple and when I'm ready to take the sacrament and that kind of thing. It's amazing. These, it, these pictures I saw in, this would have been 1973. I, I can still remember them. So, um, 
And another effect was that um, when I went through a difficult period and I didn't feel that I had anywhere to turn, I decided to use the rubber band and go to, the, to go to a porn shop and look at the gay porn and pop myself with the rubber band. Well, that created, you know, having it not even going on in a controlled situation, I ended up having a brief period where I had, was having difficulty with pornography. It didn't last very long, and pornography was never a major issue for me. But um, I think that it was, so I think that's one of the effects, is that the permanent, permanently embedded in my mind pornographic images, and um, at a point of desperation, and it was desperation, um, returning to that and putting myself at serious risk of big problems, thankfully it didn't happen, um, you know, in an effort to self-treat. So, During this time that he's monitoring you, he, I'm sure he, he wanted to check up to see the effects of the aversion therapy, right? Uh-huh. So one of the accusations is that um, they say that people administering aversion therapy would um, pressure their clients to give positive results just as a way to get out of aversion therapy. Um, they would say that they would force them to be in aversion therapy until they said that things were. Did you feel pressure from um, the therapist to make up results that weren't there? No, not that I recall. Okay. But I think that he was so kind to me, and he was so gentle, and he was so um, so accepting. There was no pressure, but I I just kind of wanted to be successful because he was, it, and it was genuine. He there was no pressure that I recall, and I I'm pretty good at telling when I'm being pressured. Even then, it was just. He just genuinely wanted me to be successful. So that's how I feel. So how did the therapy end? What caused it to end? Well, the semester ended. Oh, so it was just an end of the semester and moved on type thing. Yeah, and, and, and I was, it was, I was, it was winding down and I'd gone through all of the, you know, and, and, and I was feeling comfortable with myself more so than when I walked through the door, probably more so than I ever had in my life just comfortable with myself as a person. You know, it really didn't do anything to to diminish the craving or the desires or the attractions. So, Feeling good with yourself as a person is just definitely a major change. What do you attribute that to? The acceptance that he showed me. I didn't, prior to walking through that door, I believed that no human being would ever be able to accept me for who I was, what I was. And somebody did. Awesome. Another issue that's frequently brought up when discussing aversion therapy is um, they, um, many people say that the church is the one that um, institutes it and, and pushed it on people. And you said he did, he gave you a priesthood blessing, so I'm assuming he was LDS. Yes. What part do you think the, the fact that he was Mormon played in it? Well, I don't know how much. I know that that they, you know, that Latter-day Saint people want to help people with this issue so that they don't go start acting out and, and that kind of thing. So, I mean, I'm sure that was a factor. But 
it was something that was done all over the United States. This is not something that was only done by the church. It's not something that was, you know, that was, you know, that the, the brethren were pushing. Other than, you know, they probably knew about it. They were probably listening. You know, not, but really, I'm speculating here, so I'm gonna back off. Um, but the reality is, this was something that was done in universities and treatment centers all over the United States during that time. And it was a common practice in the day, and blaming the church for it is, I just think that's ludicrous. I'm sorry. It's just, it, make, it, it makes for a ludicrous discussion. During an interview on LDS.org, Eller Oaks was asked about the therapies um, related to SSA. And in his response, he said that the aversive therapies that have been used in connection with same-sex attraction have contained some serious abuses that have been recognized over time within the professions. While we have no position about what the medical doctors do, except in very, very rare cases, such as abortion would be such an example, we are conscious that there are abuses and we don't accept responsibility for those abuses. Even though they are addressed at helping people, we would like to see helped. We can't endorse every kind of technique that's been used. Now, many critics of the church um, look at Elder Oak's statement and think that the church should take responsibility for the damage caused by aversion therapy. Um, how would you respond to those critics? Well, I wonder what, what actual damage has been done. Okay. When I hear people complaining about aversion therapy or about and, and aversion therapy, as soon as somebody talks about about therapy to help someone change, they all, always fall back to aversion therapy, and then they go on and on about you know all the side effects and how destructive it is and 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 the potential for suicide and you know quite frankly, from my perspective, they're talking about my experience with antidepressants. I've never had a positive effect from antidepressants. I have never, ever, ever had a, um, a anything but a side effect. I've experienced some of the side effects I've gotten from antidepressants were so unbelievably, you know, like I, I went, one antidepressant I was on had so many, I had, I had migraines every day that I took one. Migraines that were so bad that I couldn't function or think or anything. And I took I took them for four days. I had four unbelievably bad migraines. So I had far more negative effects from my experience with antidepressants than I did with um, with my aversion therapy. So I think that I was able to deal with my with with my depression by using um, cognitive behavioral therapy. And so I'm a big advocate of cognitive behavioral therapy because it worked very well for me. But antidepressants work for other people. So, so I, I don't think that I have any business saying we should ban antidepressants or that somebody, you know, the, the doctors that gave me antidepressants should somehow be accountable for my side effects. Um, it, it, it makes no sense to me. And the church leaders didn't um, dream up the um, aversion therapy, all they did was people at BYU used therapy that was used all over the United States. And, I mean, you know, let's talk about some real serious things that the field of psychiatry has done. 
all the people that got lobotomies back in the 30s and the 40s and maybe even the 50s still. Um, you know, so my experience with aversion therapy was not positive, but I don't think that anybody, you know, I, I don't feel like I was abused. I don't feel like I was attacked. I don't feel like I was pressured. And I don't think anybody is accountable or responsible for that. I think somebody, they tried something and it didn't work. Okay? Doctors do that all the time. They did it with my antidepressants. I must have tried six or seven different, different types. None of them ever did any good for me. So, so you know, who, sh who should I make accountable for my antidepressant bad experience? And at some point, we get on with our lives and find something that works and, and get on with it. Which is what you did. That's exactly what I did. So, I guess we're ready to move on to the next section. What were some of these other things that worked? What, what were some other things you've tried? And then we'll talk about what worked and what didn't. Well, I had a therapist that used systematic desensitization, and that didn't work. Actually, I had a female therapist at BYU in 1980, probably starting at about 1979. Most wonderful lady, um, Dr. Maxine Murdoch. She just was, she just was a funny lady, and she was fun to be around. And essentially what she did was she had me read books like uh, The Sensuous Man, and she had me read sex, you know, essentially sex manuals. And my roommates just didn't understand why I was reading sex manuals when I was at BYU. They were giving me a hard time. But so I read these sex manuals about how to have good sex with women, and we talked about them. And, she, and so I was essentially taught about sex with women by a female uh, clinical psychologist. She had a PhD in clinical psychology. Absolutely delightful lady. And you know, at some point I kind of thought, well, I could do this. And um, so, you know, and it wasn't. It was along that time that I met my first wife, and and the feelings kind of went down for a while. And <clears throat> and um, I was feeling pretty good about myself. And so then I met my my first wife, and and. Uh, the first time I kissed her, my thought was, wow, I can do this. And um, so, uh, you know, it wasn't long until we were engaged, and it wasn't long after that that we were married, and, you know, the rest is history, about about five years. And I almost didn't have, I almost had no homosexual feelings for about the first three years of our marriage. It was, they, they were almost gone, and I think, I don't know why, other than maybe I was so busy having having sex with my wife that um, that you know, that like newlyweds do, that I really didn't have time, I didn't have the energy to think about anything else. So um, and then, after our first child was born, her libido dropped way off, and so we, you know, so our sexual activity dropped way down, and so the the homosexual feelings came back very strong and very powerfully. At which point, about five years into the marriage, I told her how um, about about my, my attractions and, and um, then I went through a very difficult period, a couple of a near suicide, then another period where um, I was just mostly numb. I didn't feel anything. I stayed with my wife. 
you know, we weren't happy, and you know, she wasn't happy, and I wasn't happy, and and I was lonely, and I was just craving male contact. I was dreaming about it. Um, it was it was a very difficult period in my life, and um, it took a few years. I, I was about ready to give up when I. Uh, the Spirit started working on me, and I opened the Scriptures for the first time in years because I was pretty disgusted with the church, and I was disgusted with myself, and I was just, I was angry at God because He gave me this, and I hadn't really done any Scripture reading or anything, and so um, I um, opened my Scriptures one day for the first time in a couple of years. They just fell open. Um, to Alma, men and brethren of the church, have you had this? Have you had this mighty change in your heart? Have you had His image placed upon your countenance? I knew that I hadn't, so I asked for it. I said a prayer and I asked for it, and from that moment on, I was different. I still had the cravings, I still had the dreams, but I just had a different view of them. It was like. It was like the Lord was telling me, okay, well, this is okay. You're okay. You're doing fine. You're good. That's all right. And, and I began a process of learning and sanctifying. And, and, and it was a few years later that I kind of went through a period again where I got really tired because, yes, I was being faithful. Yes, I was doing my part. But the, the cravings were just there, and they wouldn't go away. And I was about ready to give up again and... Um, the, I, I got a new bishop, and um, like his third week as my bishop, he walked up to me and he said, um, you and I need to talk tonight. I said, okay. And so I walked into his office, and he said, nothing. He just sat there and looked at me and stared right through me. And so I looked at him, and I said, you know, if you can't handle this conversation, um, there's no law says we have to finish it. He just kind of looked at me like, what? And then said, okay. And I just began telling him about my experience with the attractions and the cravings and everything I've been through. I told him about my aversion therapy, and he said, they did that at a church school? They were showing you pornography at a church school? And I said, well, I said it was standing operating procedure in those days. And then he laughed. Um... And then for the next two years, he gave me two to three hours a week. We just talked sometimes. Sometimes we played racquetball. He just became my friend. And he gave me love, just pure, unconditional love of Christ. And there were times when he just would take a minute and hold me, just like you would a 10-year-old that was not doing well. And And... Over that the period of time, the cravings went away, the, the, the feelings diminished, and, and I've been, it's, it's been amazing. It's been an amazing experience for me. So just to go back a little bit in the story, you talked about having not read in your scriptures for a long time and you being depressed. And then you opened up and, and started reading and and you prayed and, and you said you, you felt different. But I guess I'm I'm not exactly clear how you felt different. Like 
were you still depressed? Were you how how was how did it affect your depression? I was still depressed. I went through depression. I was less depressed. I still experienced depression. I still experienced significant ups and downs. But the way I put it is, I went from being a mess to being the Lord's mess. I was still a mess. I still had all these problems. I still had all these challenges. But he was there, and he was with me, and I felt him. Um, and there were times when I'd, you know, when I'd stumble again, and he'd say, and I'd, I'd pray, and I could just feel the Spirit say, you're forgiven. And I remember saying, having a prayer saying, Heavenly Father, how many times are you going to forgive me? And then the thought coming to me, well, I expect you to do 70 times 7. You think I'm going to do less? And, I mean, it was just, he just took care of me. I just can't, I can't describe it. I just, that's one of those things that I just have to invite people to experience for themselves. But yes, I was still a mess, and I was still having a difficult time. And when I asked him why I have to go through this, sometimes I just felt peace temporarily. Sometimes, you know, just, it just felt, I knew he was taking care of me, so I couldn't walk away from what I was experiencing. I could no longer deny his love for me. I could no longer deny what, that, that he wanted me to overcome this and that he had a plan. And whatever that plan was, I didn't know what it was, but it was like I was just kind of, every step I took in the dark seemed to give me a little more light. So it was just, that's, it's hard to describe. It's great. I've had similar experiences as well. It is an amazing thing, and I hope our listeners um, will be able to have experiences like that for themselves if they haven't already. Um, I did want to talk to you a bit about your interactions with the bishop. Um, there's a lot of people who view, um, because of the church's stance on the law of chastity, think that because the church is against same-sex relationships, that it has a very negative, condescending viewpoint for people who have those types of desires. Um, but that didn't seem to be what, what, that didn't seem to be how you were describing your bishop. Not that one. So, did you, what, how did, how, how was your bishop able to balance the teachings of the law of chastity with Loving you and being your friend. I don't, well, I wasn't acting on it, so I hadn't, I hadn't really violated the law of chastity, so there was, so there was nothing to balance. There was just, you know, I had these cravings, I had resisted in them, and he was just, he was just there, and, um, there were, there were no resources at the, t at that time. There was no Evergreen. There was no North Star. There was no. There, I don't. I think there there may have been an Exodus, but you know, I didn't even know. I didn't know about it. And, and it, he um, he bought these books that the church put out that you know on, for bishops on how to counsel with people, and and it was it's volumes, absolutely volumes. It's like six, seven volumes, and how to how to deal with um, financial problems and divorce. And, Every, you know, think, imagine a problem a family can have. It was in that book, except for one. They didn't even mention the same-sex attractions. It was, there was nothing about it. It was, 
And his description of, of it was, it is conspicuously missing. And I had had experiences with a few other bishops and a stake president that were very negative, that were, I knew that they were disgusted by my very existence. I could tell. And it was, but that wasn't the case with this bishop. He was so loving, so kind, so supportive. And, and, and he gave all of, and he gave me all this. And eventually, um, my eldest corn president became involved. And so he kind of, kind of took me under his wing a little bit. And, um, I was, there was another prominent man in our ward that, that, we started doing things with, and so I was getting these male needs met. And um, this, uh, this this other man, I was sitting sitting with some couples. My wife was there, and we were sitting together in a in a in an ice cream shop. And this man starts running. He, he was he was a funny guy. He could run his mouth better than anybody I know. So he starts running his mouth about you know if he was the bishop, and and somebody came to him and they committed adultery. He'd say, oh well, let's talk about it, but. If somebody came to me and they were homosexual, I'd probably break a chair over their head. And I remember almost standing up and handing him a chair. Um, but my wife grabbed my leg and looked at me like, you know, as if to be saying, shut up, don't say a word. And so I didn't. But about um, a few weeks later, um, I was, um, I'd been called to the Elders Corn Presidency and I was getting his home teaching report from him, and I invited him to my house, and I said, um, and he was also, he was the young men's president, and he had three young men in his young men's group that, that I knew for a fact were dealing with this. So I shared my experience with him, and um, he became, once again, a very close friend. Um, and um, we, you know, we can, we could, I haven't seen him for a while because he moved away, but if I were to run into him, we could still argue politics to this day and do it with just passion and love for each other at the same time. In 1995, Elder Oaks gave a talk about same-gender attraction. And one of the things that he said um, is all should understand that persons and their family members struggling with the burden of same-sex attraction are in special need of the love and encouragement that is a clear responsibility of church members who have signified by covenant their willingness to bear one another another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Um, how do you feel that the bishop and the elders quorum president um, did that with you? Just by, just through their love and acceptance and, and just helping me coming out and you know, it just it was. Um, I, I have such a deep appreciation for these people. They were um, they were kind. They were loving. They accepted me where I was. They listened to my crying and my whining. You know, they uh, the elders corn president was one of those people that could fix anything, and I'm and I can't fix anything. He just helped me with. He showed me a lot of things on how, you know things that. You know, my father never showed me. I mean, he, he just was there. They were there, and and they and and they loved me. I knew they did. So, um, and and I think what they learned, what I excuse me, I I think what I learned from this experience, and I really believe this, and I've said this repeatedly, but I believe that the 
the quorums, the priesthood quorums of the church are literally designed to help people with this challenge and to help them to, um, to overcome and to, you know, and, and I believe that because that's my experience. And I've also had the experience where, you know, they're just hateful and ugly and that makes the problem worse. And, um, when, when church leaders, you know, show contempt and, and hatred towards, when they show contempt and hatred towards me, it made the problem worse. These people that showed me love, the pure love of Christ and, and, and lifted me up, they're, they're the reason that I went, uh, that I am where I am today. Awesome. So you said that through your bishops working, um, after some time, that you're craving for men who went away. Yes. Um, to what do you attribute that? Well, I'm a big fan of Elizabeth Moberly. Her uh, her book, uh, Homosexuality: A New Christian Ethic, where she says that the, this challenge is a result of a defensive detachment from our own sex, and that. And it's an unmet need, and that if you meet the need, it'll solve the problem. And that is my experience. They met, I, I had my same sex, my same sex love needs met, and it helped. It created my positive outcome. Were you under therapy at this time? Um, no. I mean, I've had I had therapy like because my marriage was was struggling all the time, so there would be. There would be marriage and family therapy, but I wasn't getting therapy for my attractions. And the therapist I was going to didn't know anything about it. In fact, um, I had two of the therapists during that time come to me as a resource because they ended up having other clients that, that dealt with it and they wanted. I had a therapist coming to me for my help during that time. Wow. And it shows you where you were at. This, the therapists yeah. are coming to you. So let's go on talking about your first marriage. So you said that things were um, going bad. Mm -hmm. So what eventually happened? Well, we eventually divorced. Right. Now, um, a lot of people have um, said that these types of marriages um, just don't have a hope of success. There's the statistics that of marriages where the partner does not know about the attractions before getting married, that 85% of them get divorced within five years after um, the marriage. In response to that, Elder Oak said, we are sometimes asked about whether marriage is a remedy for these feelings that we've been talking about. President Hinckley faced with the fact that apparently some had believed it to be a remedy and that perhaps some church leaders had even counseled marriage as the remedy for these feelings made this statement. Marriage should not be viewed as a therapeutic step to solve problems such as homosexual inclinations or practices. To me, that means that we are not going to stand still to put at risk daughters of God who would enter into such marriage under false pretenses or under a cloud unknown to them. Persons who have this kind of challenge that they cannot control could not enter marriage in good faith. Um, were you encouraged by, were you told that by church leaders that marriage would fix everything? I was told that by one. Okay. 
I was I I was told one one bishop told me that if I got married it would go away. Mm-hmm. Um, and but you know when I married her I really had had a temporary diminishing of the feelings and so I you know and then and then such a powerful response to my first wife and so at the time I didn't tell her about it. Um, at the time it was like well what is there to tell because I was confident that it was gone it would never come back. Um, that was wrong, and um, I'd never acted on it, so what was there to tell? Um, I mean, it'd be one thing if I had been, you know, out sleeping around, but um, I wasn't. So, so that was, but I also have considered that to be the biggest single mistake I ever made in my life, was not telling her. And, and some of that is, you know, and, and that's a selfish thing, um, because those of us who deal with this, when we decide to get married, we need to have someone who loves us enough to help us with this and to accept this and to honor this as a part of who we are. And um, and those of us who are successful in living the gospel, doing what we're supposed to do, deserve to be respected for what we're accomplishing. So when we reach the point where we're comfortable with marriage, um, for ourselves, we need to tell them, not for that, not for not. Not for the other person, for ourselves, to make sure that we're going to have someone who's going to love who we are and honor us for what we have accomplished. Amen. I really enjoy that. My wife helps me out a lot. So Elder Oaks continued and said, on the other hand, persons who have cleansed themselves of any transgression and who have shown their ability to deal with these feelings or inclinations and put them in the background and feel a great attraction for a daughter of God, and therefore desire to enter marriage and have children and enjoy the blessings of eternity, that's a situation where marriage would be appropriate. Um, how do you know the difference? Well, I think that I was there. As I said, um, my feelings had gone way down, mm-hmm. and I met a woman that just flat turned my head. Okay? Um, so I think I was there, um, with, with that criteria. My problem, my biggest problem was at the time, neither of us were really committed to living the gospel. So I kind of drifted away from, when I got home from my mission and was studying psychology and believing what I heard. And, and, um, so religion was becoming less and less important to me. And, um. And I was critical of the brethren, and I was critical of the church during that time. And uh, so when I married her, she was to some degree the same way. And uh, so when I made, began my transformation, it was, you know, that, that changed the rules of the marriage, and that was an issue. And once I told her, I also told her about being sexually abused at the same time. And it... it the issue became a scapegoat for every problem. And and there were probably some problems that, that it created, but it didn't create every problem. And um, I was not a perfect husband, and she was not a perfect wife. And eventually she decided she wanted to move on, and that was um, difficult for me at first, um, but, but not anymore. It's not – I don't uh, – I, I don't feel – uh, I've, I've moved on 
she wanted to move on, and she did, and it took me a while, but so did I. Well, good for you. Um, so one of the things that I thought was interesting um, is a lot of critics do say that people with SSA get married just because the church pressures them and they wanted to please the church. But you said you weren't even active at all at that point. To what degree did that pressure play into your decision to get married? Well, I was at BYU, and I was 24 and a half. We all know what Brigham Young said, um, or is supposed to have said. My mother was sending me letters telling me that her friend Joyce had all these grandchildren and I wasn't producing and she wanted me to start producing. And so, you know, when you're at Brigham Young University, there's a tremendous amount of, of pressure to get married. And so I think there was some, I think pre there was some pressure that was a factor. And I wasn't completely inactive. I was just, I would say I was less active and I was cynical and I was bitter and there were issues that I was um, critical of the church on. But I mean, I would go to sacrament meeting a couple, you know, once once a month or maybe twice if I got out of bed in time. And it was, it, I wasn't completely gone, but I was still at BYU and there was still all the pressure. So when you had come out to your wife the first time, how much did she understand about the issues surrounding same-sex attraction? Probably nothing. Did that play a factor? Probably. Okay. And well, plus, her family was pretty homophobic too. Some some of her family members were pretty homophobic, so that was a factor too. Mm -hmm. um, when you say homophobic, that that means a lot of things to different people. What, what how do you define homophobic? Oh, gay bashing at family dinners. That would be homophobic. So, okay. so it's and 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 I don't, I don't want to portray it as all of them. Certainly it wasn't all of them, but there were some that were. Many of the family members were military. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and at that time you couldn't be openly gay in the military. Right. So you had had this um, spiritual awakening. Um, you got back into church, but then you went through this divorce. Um, how did that affect where you're at? Well, the interesting thing is that, I mean, it, it ripped me apart. Um, it ripped me from one side of my body to the other. It was the most painful thing I have ever experienced. I, I can't imagine. Um, but the interesting thing is that I didn't experience a significant increase in the attractions during that time, which I was afraid I would. Um, my, the temptations didn't increase, um, maybe a tiny bit. I think I may have had one or two bad days. Um, I was just, I was ripped apart during that time. So I learned, you know, and then I, I lost my job, and then I lost this. I mean, you know, I lost my home. and I mean, it was just, um, I, I pretty much learned during that time that the only thing I had that no one could take from me was my faith in Jesus Christ. And it was, therefore, the thing that deserved the most energy on my part. Um, and, and I gave it that. And it was, it was just... It was such a difficult time, but I felt the spirit with me so much during that time. And, um, you know, scriptures jumping out at me. Um, so it was, and of course, you know, the, um, 
word was spread that um, I was that, that I'm gay, and all over, pretty much all over the state and all over town, and, um, and I, I was on the receiving end of a, a lot of mistreatment during that time. Um, but you know, the, the Lord just took care of me probably more during that time than ever before or since, and um, I just look back on it with, um, with yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy, but it's, I was blessed so much during that time that um, I would be willing to do that again if necessary. Okay, there, I put it out there, Lord, you can just ignore that. Can I bring it back now? <laughs> yeah, it was, um, it was a very difficult time, but I was very blessed. So you you said that there's um, you receive some negative reactions um, from people who um, when they found out that you had same sex attraction and you were divorced, um, there, there that brings up a lot of stereotypes um, about that. How can members um, be more sensitive um, to people who are divorced with SSA? Um, they need to love more and judge less. That isn't their place to judge me any more than it's my place to judge them for their weaknesses. So I have a weakness that's just the same as theirs. It's a weakness. And um, so, and they have theirs too. So, you know, who are they to judge me and who am I to judge them? And it's my job to love them and it's their job to love me. And you're no longer a single divorced man. Um, can you explain some of the things that led up to your second marriage and how it differed from your first marriage? Well, I wasn't looking at all. I didn't think I would ever get married again. Um, I was perfectly content being single. In fact, I was much happier being single than I'd been married. Um, and I could go home at night and I could read my scriptures in peace and quiet and listen to the to music. I was getting really selfish too, just by the way. But I had I had a very active social life. I had lots of friends and I was active in the community. And um, I met this uh, woman through work who um, she was so impressive. Um, I just I enjoyed looking at watching the way she did things. I enjoyed her way of dealing with employees and her she she was she just handled things really well and um and I didn't and so I kind of liked watching how she operated and to some degree wanted to emulate her and she was really kind to me and and um you know worked hard at working with me and I was going through a divorce and I probably so I probably wasn't easy to work with during those times as easy maybe as I am now. And so we were work colleagues, and then we kind of became friends, and and um, she started. Um, she one 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 day she she shared something about her husband who was essentially abusing the children, and and I told her that she should get a divorce because um, she, you know she shouldn't have him around abusing her children. So you know we had those kinds of conversations, but. And then she left and went to work somewhere else, and 
Then one day she uh, came back to came through our office because she had work reasons for being there, and um, she told me that her husband had filed for divorce. And I essentially told her that um, that he was an idiot, and you know that she could do better than him anyway, and and you know she didn't need to even think think twice about about the fact that he'd done that, and just purge herself of him. And, um, of course, I had no interest in her because I wasn't going to get married again, and I certainly was only interested in marrying a member of the church, um, and she wasn't. So um, as she was going through a divorce, we just kind of started hanging out as friends, and we'd go to the movies together or go out to dinner, and we'd just kind of talk and hang out. And it, was, it was comfortable and easy, and she was, um, you know, and, and, and one day I gave her my list of, things that I, I had to have in, in a wife if I were going to get married again. And I told her, well, you're the epitome of number two, but number one is that you have to be uh, a faithful, Christ-loving, temple-attending member of the church. And since she wasn't a member of the church, I said, so, you know, but I said, you're the epitome of number two, but you're not number one, and number one is number one for a reason. And... Um, it wasn't long after that that she had some spiritual experiences that changed her life, and we started dating, and after a couple of years of dating, and people were pressuring me to get married to her, and I did not succumb to the pressure. Um, the Spirit let, let me know that I was to marry her, and I loved her, and I think very highly, and I always thought very highly of her. So she started as a work colleague and became a friend, and then... We started dating, and now we're married, and I have a marriage that is so easy, so comfortable, that um, when people talk about how difficult marriage is, they'll say, well, you know, marriage is really difficult, and I just say, only if you choose to make it that way. So, you know, you can have one like my first marriage that was difficult because we made it that way, or we can have one like my second marriage that is not difficult at all because we choose to make it that way. How long have you been married? Seven, uh, seven and a half years. Right. And how, how much has SSA played into the marriage? Um, almost none. I told her about it. We argue. That's one of the things we argue about when I told her. I, I say that I told her before we even started dating while we were still friends, and she says that I waited until after we started dating. So... But it, but it was early on in the dating. She knew what she was getting herself into with me, close to right off the bat. And um, she's uh, she's very supportive. She's always been supportive of me, and uh, I've been supportive of her, and there's never been a, a, an issue with it. Um, there are many spouses um, who have just learned about their spouses, um SSA, and they would like to be probably more in the second group than the first group. Um, what are some things that you think that they could do to be that support for their husband or wife who has same-sex attraction? Well, first of all, every problem in your marriage isn't a result of your, your spouse's FSA. Okay? Ladies, your husband is not controlling the remote because he has FSA. He's not moody because he has FSA. Straight men are moody, you know, so just acknowledge that every marriage is going to have some challenges. So you can choose to minimize them. 
Well, but it takes both parties to minimize them. Um, I think that's the first. That's first and foremost. I think that you need to to um, live the gospel together and be committed to living the gospel together. And I think that that's important. And following the teachings of the gospel of Jesus Christ and read the scriptures together and pray together and do you know do all the things that you're, you say. Um, honor your temple covenants and forgive and be patient. But, you know, those are things that every marriage has to have. So, you know, there may be some unique challenges that, that we have in our lives, but I'm, I don't know that, I don't know that they're as big a deal. I think they're only as big a deal as we make them. I think that if you're, if, if a, a spouse is dealing with the attractions, they probably have some unique needs that other men don't have. They probably need a little more guy time um, so that they can meet their same-sex love needs, get their same-sex love needs met. So they need that time, and the spouses need to be a little patient with that. But I don't know. Some of you know, I think the, the guys that don't deal with this go play basketball at the church every Tuesday night with, with, with the other, with the other bas- basketball types. So even that's not unusual. Okay, moving on to about the different support groups. What support groups have you been involved in? Well, because of where I live, there are almost none. I started by going to a, there was a, when I, when I first wanted to come back to the church, when I talked about that period where I just, it was after I got married and I'd gone through the suicidal time, and I, I found a, Homosexuals Anonymous chapter that was being held at an evangelical church. And I went there for a couple months, but then when they found out I was Mormon, they essentially told me that if I was going to be there, that they weren't. And it was their church, so I left and didn't go back. But I found, you know, they they took the 12-step program and they modified it to 13 steps to deal with, with uh, people that have the homosexual feelings and tendencies or whatever. And I took their literature and I worked the steps and I think that was helpful and it gave me um, strength and it grounded me and there was that was one that was a good thing that happened during that time. But as far as them they they didn't really offer me much support. It was their literature that, that offered me the support. Um, and then there weren't any, so I didn't have any support groups until um, after I got divorced, um, somebody I knew that Evergreen existed, but it was in Utah and I was in California, and so there was no reason to really discuss it. And I knew, and there was never an Evergreen group anywhere close to me where I live, um, in the middle of the Central Valley. So, um, you know, it just wasn't there. So, um, I started attending Evergreen conferences about 10 years ago. And when after I got married to my current wife, she attends with me and she likes them. And I continue going back because I love the people. And, um, then when North Star came along, it was an, it's an online support group, so I can do that because I can talk to people in, from all over the United States. And I've actually, because of things I've written on North Star, gotten telephone calls from people on the East Coast or even as far away as Portugal, um, you know, because, um, you know, people that needed support. So there's some real advantages to to the internet and to the online support that we can give each other for people like me who live 10 hours away from an evergreen meeting. There is a, there's a meeting that I attend in Los Angeles that is not, 
and non-denominational, interdenominational thing. There's Catholics and there's uh, evangelicals and there's Seventh-day Adventists and some Jewish people show up there um, and some Latter-day Saints go to this meeting. There's about 25 people on a busy day that go to this support group and, and they may do some good things and so it's about two and a half hours away and I can get down there about five times, no, I don't make it six times a year, but four or five times a year I get down there and it's good to be around them when I go. I like the people. People who live closer can, you know, seem to be able to get more support out of it. So, um, I find that I get more support from uh, the friends that I have here um, in in my community. Here, I have a, um, a a very helpful and supportive stake president, and um, I have. My bishop learned about, I wasn't going to talk to my current bishop about it just because I didn't want to talk about it anymore. And then Prop 8 came along and Elders Quorum deteriorated into gay bashing. So I went and told my bishop what I was facing and told him that I didn't want to have to sit and go to preacher meeting and sit and listen to gay bashing. So he learned that I, about what I deal with and he's very supportive. He doesn't understand it. Um, it's outside of his comfort zone, but I just really honor him for trying. He he tries really hard, and I really love him for that. So, um, was anything resolved with the gay bashing in the priesthood quorum? Yeah, he put me in primary. <laughs> <laughs> well, that works. So I didn't have to deal with it. I you know I just enjoyed their children. So it was awesome. I'm sure they would have loved to know that you were teaching their children. Well, two and a half years. And I was, and after the first year, the, the primary president moved me from a different class to the one that her son was in. And then they changed primary presidents the next, for the next year. And she moved me back so that I would be in the class that her son was in. So I think they liked my teaching. Good. Good. Oh, and, uh, the um, I'm I'm pretty confident, although I've never discussed it with her. I'm pretty confident that the the second uh, Relief Society president knew about my attractions and my history, and didn't care. That's really awesome. So there are there are people who um, who have talked about um, Evergreen and have worried um, that it makes a detrimental effect on people and on their mental health. Um, how would you respond to that? I would ask them what it is that Evergreen does that causes that. Um, I love Evergreen. I love the people that are there. I love being around them. It's, po it's a positive place to be. It's an uplifting place to be. It's a pretty non-judgmental place to be. There's politics there that irritates me, but... There's politics everywhere. So, you know, it's just, I, I would probably want to talk to them and get their perspective on exactly what it is that Evergreen is doing that creates that. Because I'm not seeing, I'm not seeing it. So I know that there are people that, you know, have gone to Evergreen for a while and then have, you know, gone and gone into the lifestyle and, you know, Everything doesn't work for everybody. 
Antidepressants didn't work for me. Let's go back to that. Okay? You know? I needed cognitive behavioral therapy. It did wonders for me. I don't think I've been depressed since I went through the book. And all I did was go through a a book, the Feel Good Handbook by by David Burns, MD. That's what I did. I haven't had a serious depression since. So that's all I needed. Um, So everything doesn't work for everybody. Right. So you just got to find what you did Um, because the church doesn't um, officially sponsor Evergreen. It's just a resource out there for people. And and the church definitely doesn't officially sponsor North Star, but I like my involvement in it, and we're on our own, and we're doing the best we can, and sometimes it's good, and sometimes we stumble, but, you know, we're just going to keep plugging along. Awesome. Awesome. Um, is there anything else you'd like to talk about or say? I think I've said everything. Um, but I wanted to thank you for being on our segment and wish you the best of luck. Okay. Well, thank you. Questions or comments about this episode can be sent to podcast at fairlds.org or join the conversation at fairblog.org. Tell your friends about us and help increase the popularity of this podcast by subscribing in iTunes and by writing a review. Music for this episode was provided courtesy of Lawrence Green. The opinions expressed in this podcast are not necessarily the views of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or of FAIR.